Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the historic edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. We're coming to you from steamy, sleep-deprived Washington, D.C. A lot of people up very early this week. Uh, as I was at 4 a.m., to hear history in the making, the, the big Iran deal which was announced this week. Do you feel the history? I feel the history. In fact, I feel historic. I feel Historically historic. tired of yeah. <laughs> thinking about this Iran deal. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad the deal is history. Well, now it's now a new chapter of history That's will be right. opening, um, which we're going to talk about on the show today. Um, you know that voice, of course, my friend Tamara Kaufman. What is this here? Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. You're looking mighty historic today. Thank you. I wore my historic, uh, best historic clothing. I'm dressed as um, a 19th century um, farmer. No, <laughs> uh, I should have worn that today, actually, um, because I have that in my closet. Next week, sure? I want to see that yeah, next week. Totally. Yeah, totally. That's, that's your Iran, re- Iran deal review. Yeah, costumes, I have lots yeah. of costumes and wigs mm-hmm. that I will start bringing. Um, <laughs> Add a whole new dimension. Yeah, to the let's, let's do it. Um, <clears throat> and that other voice you hear is not Ben Wittes, who is away this week, and we are joined by our good friend Wells Bennett. Hi, Wells. Hey, gang. How What's are going you? On? I am excellent. Historic. Wells uh, of Brookings and Lawfare, and uh, my neighbor in Bloomingdale. What? That's right. Bloomingdalian. That's right. Um, so today, this week, today on the show, uh, the Iran deal is finally here. We're going to look at what's in it, what it does and doesn't do. Uh, we'll take a closer look at sanctions, which ones are being relieved, who will that help. Plus, do we need a new AUMF for Russia? Also in our object lessons, sideburns, and peanut brigaders. So, tomorrow, why don't you kick us off uh, with your wordplay? Well, Shane, I'm, I decided I would spend my time on the podcast reading the entire Iran deal and its five annexes. Get ready, kids. Gird your loins, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's going to be a 10-hour podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do that to you folks, and, uh, and many of you may have spent the week doing what, what Shane and I apparently did, which is actually at least skimming yeah. the entire agreement. I really did try and read it, too, and oh, my God, it is unremittingly dense. As such agreements should be. Is that re- Really? Uh, yeah, because, I mean, there's the historic nature That's and all true. that, which, which I do want to talk about, but there's also the details. The details matter. The details matter. And, uh, and I think we're already seeing from all the people who have spent the week reading the agreement that there are differences in, ter- in the way they are interpreting those details, many of which will be fought over in the 60 days to come as Congress reviews this deal. So that was actually what I wanted to focus on in my wordplay is how President Obama launched what will undoubtedly be a fiercely fought debate over the Iran deal in Congress when he announced the agreement um, early Tuesday morning. Uh, you know, he laid out his argument because of this deal, the ways in which Iran will not be able to pursue nuclear weapons, all of the advantages he sees. But not once, but twice, he uh, 
emphasized a point that I think is going to be his key argument in making the case to Congress, which is that the alternative to this deal is, a, is uh, as one presidential advisor put it last year, a slippery slope to war. Right. Those were not the president's words this option, week. Yeah. But it's an either-or option. It's either diplomacy or war. I was elected to do diplomacy and get us out of wars. That's what I've done. And if you reject this diplomacy, you are responsible for the alternative. That seemed to be the gauntlet he threw down. And I thought that was really coming out punching hard. He came out swinging, yeah. Yeah. Seven o'clock in the morning and swinging. It was, and I think, I feel like that also very much set the tone for the day. And I was surprised that there was not more sort of vociferous, immediate opposition from the Hill. I mean, there were the usual suspects of people who were saying, you know, we don't like the deal, but we're going to spend time reading it. That was the other very pleasant thing, is how many, many critics people of the deal wanted said, we're to spend time read reading it. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. now, did they actually read it, or were they actually spending time on the phone with various stakeholder groups saying, what should I say about the deal? Right, right. Judging right. by the speed of the reaction, <laughs> I think we They all read really quickly. They're just very, very fast, fast readers. There's something of a rhetorical trap for some of your, the most hockey out there. You know, the bomb, bomb, bomb Iran crap. Yeah. I mean, some of them are saying, it's a bad deal, and yeah, we should go to war with those guys. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and this is what's interesting to me, is reflecting on just these first few days of our domestic debate over this deal, and the uh, the regional voices, especially from uh, the Israeli prime minister that are entering into our domestic debate, it strikes me that... President Obama and the White House have gauged the politics on this pretty darn well all mm-hmm. the way along, or at least, you know, since the end of last year when they, um, when they bargained that they could win the congressional debate over putting on new sanctions to how they played Netanyahu's speech to Congress to getting the deal with Corker on congressional review. Uh, in a way that's very advantageous to them. So they just have to hold 34 senators, which I, I'm pretty sure they'll be able to do. Yeah. So in a way, having won those victories along the road, this debate is anticlimactic. Um, they have the deal. And it's, it's a very steep hill, I think, for opponents of the deal on, in Congress right now. Yeah, and I think the, obviously we're going to see hearings. The timing of this is interesting, too. We've got about two and a half weeks before they break for August recess, so they have to cram their hearings in then. We can predict exactly what the hearings are going to say, and the same concerns that were raised before we saw the deal that were raised with the preliminary framework are going to be raised now. And then they're going to go away. They have 60 days. They're going to go away for all of August, which is going to mean it's just going to deflate that debate. Uh, I'm not seeing a lot of town hall meetings probably in the offing about the Iranian nuclear accord. Well, and it's hard for me to imagine town hall meetings where, you know, Iowans stand up and say, we want war with Iran. Right. Go reject that deal. That's right. And I think, that, I mean, that, exactly. I mean, that goes back to your point, which, I mean, you know, I think the president, yeah, he judged, clearly he seems to have judged the politics of this pretty darn well if it's being framed in that kind of binary way. And it, people are already saying, is this essentially a done deal? And there's no way that Congress, I mean, even members of Congress are saying that they could not override a veto. It's also a matter of national security about which he feels rather strongly. Yeah. There have been issues in the past. I mean, we've talked a lot about the AUMF issue, for example, where there's been quite a question about how passionate the White House is, in fact, about getting this, this or that thing done. But they really, really care about this. And if they do, then the question politically becomes, as a Congress, as a member of Congress, are you going to really do the work that's necessary to create a veto-proof majority 
and repudiate initiative of the president on a matter of national security. Right. Right. Now and that would be a historic, I mean, for better be or worse, historic. that's a historic <laughs> thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, you're right, Wells. And this is, in fact, the, the most consistent and, in fact, perhaps the only truly consistent component of President Obama's uh, strategy in the Middle East from the moment he entered office, which is that he was going to pursue a diplomatic path with Iran, strengthen the sanctions to do it, make it multilateral, and see if he could get a deal. And here we are. So kudos to him for persistence. You know, setting aside the domestic politics of this, on policy grounds, um, you know, obviously you can always look at these deals and think, well, it could be better here. It could really go off the rails there. Um, but I think what's what's striking is how little different it is from what the framework agreement would have anticipated yeah. or did anticipate. Um you know, basically they seem to have stuck to their guns on just about everything. And on the few things where recent indicators suggested maybe the P5 plus one was softening, like lifting the arms right. embargo, it turns out, well, they're going to lift some of it five years from now pending right. Iranian compliance and the, and the ballistic missile stuff not, not for eight years. Yeah. So that gives us plenty of time to test and see if this thing falls apart. And that, that's also one of the things I found interesting going through this is that you know, you do really see as you're sort of, you know, you have to wade through some pretty, you know, thick and extensive, you know, language. But this is a very choreographed, timed, sort of like scripted process that is going to play out for the next roughly 10 to 15 years. I mean, it's not as if, you know, we're all just signing on to something and we'll hope for the best. There are these key milestones. There are moments where the sanctions, some sanctions come off. We'll talk about that in a little bit and where some stay on. I mean, it is a very sort of regimented kind of thing, and you can see all the places along the way where Iran could screw it up for itself, and they could essentially be right back where they started. Now, I mean, I don't know if the snapback, there's always been a debate about whether you can actually snap these sanctions back, but it seems to me there are plenty of places along the road for us to sort of call BS on Iran if we think it's not complying, and to have a new conversation about that. It's not as if we just sort of signed the deal and say, you know, buy Iran, behave, and no one's going to come check up on you. And I know that the anytime, anywhere bit of business about inspection is not what some people wanted, but, you know, there is a pretty rigorous inspection schedule here, and if the Iranians simply said that they're not going to comply with it, well, then the deal's off. Like, there are lots of places for us to keep, continue to be checking in on this. I mean, it is not just a sort of general agreement. It's very, very specific for many, many years. I, you know, I think that's right, Shane, although you're also right to point out that it puts a premium on the way sanctions relief is structured, yeah. and um, and I look forward to talking to you about that. But the other thing that struck me reading the text of the agreement, and Wells, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is that everything about Iran's obligations, it's not framed in the text in terms of obligations. It's framed in terms of Iran's plan for its peaceful nuclear development, it's a very which it nicely, It's a very nicely worded thing. Right. So in terms of like assuaging, you know, or providing a kind of face-saving framework, it's very nice, and Iran doesn't look like it's yielding up sovereignty. But in terms of international law, I mean, the reason we got all these UN sanctions is because they violated treaty commitments. And that is not really coming through in the text of this agreement. It's clearly a compromised document was probably meant to be that so intentionally because if you had a kind of Iran bashing document you would have you would have had the status quo ante. But I don't know. I Does it matter to to the strength of the NPT that this agreement doesn't say explicitly Iran has obligations that it took on that it needs to fulfill? 
I mean, I I would answer that, but with you know by saying no, we can't see into the future and so forth. But if you believe that the verification aspect of this deal is in fact good and is a good thing, sort of as you flip through this agreement, then you should be looking at that in terms of as a lawyer. Do I read this and say, wow, you know, this is ironclad, man? No, of course not. That's not what this is about. Yeah. But Shane, I think it's like you were saying. If you have a period, this sort of beginning time when you if Iran does something and we can call BS on them and have snap back, whatever that may mean, and there's some dispute as to what that means, but every, I think there's at least agreement that it means something more than, oops, slap on the wrist, carry on. Right, right, right. And I think the people that negotiated it viewed, viewed it in those terms for a reason. Well, if we're just sort of taking the big picture on this, I mean, it's, it strikes me, and I don't think this is particularly original insight here, but probably worth saying that, I mean, isn't the big gamble in all of this that whether or not the president's policy of trying to contain and carve off Iran's nuclear program and nuclear ambitions separate from its support for terrorism, separate from its antagonism in the region, separate from its human rights issues, whether or not that as a sort of grand strategy towards Iran can actually succeed. Can you just deal with the nuclear program in isolation and expect that that will improve or sort of Create a rising tide that will lift our relations with Iran. I mean, is that is that kind of the gamble that he's making here? Because I mean, what I wonder in this is if is this just too narrow? In other words, as comprehensive as this agreement is, can you really only relate to Iran sort of in this separate compartment and say we're just talking about the nuclear thing here and we can put all those other issues aside, or are they just inextricably linked? Because my instinct is to say they're inextricably linked, and that Iran sees its nuclear program as one component of a grander national strategy for, you know, regional hegemony and influence, the same way we would. <laughs> well, I, I, I would bet you a stack of Rouhani posters this high that the people that did this deal, at least on our side of it, I mean, are willing to engage with formal distinctions of the kind you just mentioned and are yeah. willing to go in public and defend them to a no, certain clearly. extent. I guess we'll my say, question is, like, is they that will smart say quite, policy? Is it a smart... Well, okay, so I, I would say, first... That choice was made for the Obama administration by its predecessor. It was a choice to focus on the nuclear issue because that was how we could maximize multilateral support for sanctions and for constraining Iran was by getting, you know, the maximum number of countries unified on the one problem we all agree is a yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? right. And so Obama, to some extent, inherited, although I agree with you, he doubled down on that approach. In practice, and from an Iranian perspective, of course all these sources of national power are interrelated. But as, you know, as I wrote in a piece this week for our Marcaz blog at the, at, at Brookings, um, I don't actually expect that Iran's behavior in other ways, its sponsorship of terrorism, its attempts at subversion in other states, its meddling into, for example, Lebanese politics, its support for Bashar al-Assad, these things were going to continue and, and Iran will actually increase its efforts in these in that regard, whether there's a deal or not. So I don't think Iranian nuclearization, if they'd actually gotten a bomb, that would give them additional leverage. But deal or no deal, they're doing that stuff. Yeah. They are revisionist actors. They're, they're a revolutionary power. And, uh, and so I just don't expect that we should see this deal change their spots in any fundamental way. It's funny to me how the administration kind of goes back and forth on the idea that this deal does or doesn't open up other avenues for cooperation. Mm. If I were in their shoes, 
I would I would just stick to the this is about nukes and, and the other it. stuff is still a problem. Um, and I you know I wouldn't I would try to be very disciplined about not giving hints on this other stuff. Yeah, and it seems like that's kind of like there. It's like I've always I mean just being a, a bit of a I'm not a student of Iranian U.S. relations, but from what I can see, there's always been this sort of quest on our side to find the moderates and the people that we can do business with in Iran, right? Going back to the founding of the republic. And I, and I, and, and in the people who are talking about maybe this is the beginning of a thaw, I sort of sense that same kind of, you know, elusive kind of dream, like, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe. And it just, I'm with you. I mean, they should just stick to it. It's just the nuclear deal because, I mean, come on. Well, <laughs> even look, if, even if privately, I think so. There are some people involved with this thing who would say yes. I mean, are fine distinctions it. between like a terrorism sanction and non-proliferation? Do these things really are these nice fine-grained distinctions we can draw between them and codify them in law? Eh, maybe that's a yeah. little hard, and maybe those things start to look. Eh, but don't worry about it because we're going to get a deal this way. Yeah, but you know, at the same time, you can't. You it is very very difficult to use policy tools to sh- change people's worldviews. Truth. Um, but you can sometimes use them effectively to change people's behavior. You know, Qaddafi did not become a wonderful guy, uh, a great strategic partner, or a Democrat when he gave up his nuclear program. He did it because we scared him, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to pay the price for keeping it around. But that was a good deal for the U.S. and the world. And I think that's okay. You know, if all this deal does is constrain Iran's nuclear development for at least 10 years, that is a way better world than yeah. the world we were in, and we should be happy about that. Yeah, it was, by it the was same never going to solve the problem of, you know, a region, an aspiring regional hegemon. Yeah, no one wrung their hands either about after after sort of Qaddafi gave up his nukes and started saying like, well, do we really need to? Is that a human rights thing he's doing? Is his human rights record different? Is he different about terrorism now? Oh, right. I just don't know. Like, how do, right, we, right, right, how right. do we parse these fine philosophical distinctions? Did we handle that right by making him give up all of his nukes? Yeah. Nobody did that because everybody's like, yeah, it's a good thing. He's a well, bad guy who doesn't have nukes now. And let's remember the concept in American policy that these distinctions replaced. The concept was rogue state, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was rogue state in the Clinton administration. At the beginning of the Bush administration, it was the axis of evil, mm-hmm. right? This is just evil. And uh, and I don't know how you form a policy approach toward evil other than resolute efforts to oppose and exterminate, which engage you in open-ended conflict. So I think this is a this is a better approach. Um, so let's move on to talking about this. Would be my wordplay is um, the issue of sanctions and specifically um, the, the the long list of people and institutions and entities in the Iranian Accord that um, are going to see sanctions relief of some kind. So we should say at the outset, um, people who are able to get sanctions, like people and entities that are getting some kind of relief, are these are only sanctions related to their connection or involvement with nuclear-related activities. So there's nobody who is seeing a sanction put on them for terrorism support. That's not being lifted. Uh, and there are going to essentially be two phases. There'll be one phase of sanctions relief that will come probably at the end of the year, early next year, and another will come eight years down the road, uh, and making it even more complex. There are some sanctions being lifted by the U.S. and the European Union, and some only by the European Union. So in that sort of package, um, um, a lot of uh, individual business people, individual business entities, um, some immediate near-term things that will happen. Um, Iranian airlines will actually be able to start importing equipment 
um, which should help. So their planes don't crash. So their planes stop crashing. <laughs> I think that's a humanitarian <laughs> step. Really. Actually, and the White House kind of couched it that way this week, too, being like, you know, this is a good thing considering their um, their airline safety record. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting, uh, and uh, I wrote a story about this for the Daily Beast this week, is there are some um, pretty unsavory characters who are listed in this uh, group of people who are going to see sanctions relief. So eight years down the road, which is not an eternity, um, people like Qasem Soleimani, who is the notorious Iranian general and the head of the Quds Force, uh, who has been called pure evil by the former CIA director David Petraeus, um, who has been linked to attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq. If uh, the axis of, of evil had a mascot, it, it would, would be Qasem, Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani. That is exactly right. He also kind of like looks like the most interesting man in the world. He kind of has that like the guy, you know, the Dostoevsky's guy. Uh-huh. He looks a little like him. <laughs> He I looks like a guy. I yeah. can see that. I can yeah, see yeah. that. I doubt he drinks beer, though. I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, so he's on there. A lot of other IRGC senior military officials are on there. Uh, the the Quds Force will have sanctions, nuclear related sanctions against it lifted. And we should emphasize only by the EU. That comes eight years down the road at the very end of this. But I thought that was very interesting. That in the course of these negotiations, you know, clearly our side was aware that yep, some of these people are going to be in here and see sanctions relief. We're not relieving any sanctions that the United States put against these people for their terrorist activities, their support of Syria. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, they're, they're, you know, it's not a complete jackpot for guys like that. But I thought that was just very interesting that in the, in the, what I presume is the back and forth and the deal making, yeah, there are some unsavory people who we really despise who kind of get an upside out of this. Well, okay, duh, if I may. You know, <laughs> Dr. Evil is getting sanctions relief. You know why? Because we're doing sanctions relief. It was the quid pro quo. He paid $1 million. <laughs> $1 million. <laughs> million. Uh, well, you know, according to critics of the deal, he, he tomorrow in his personal account is going to get $100 billion. Uh, and it's all going to Hezbollah and Bashar al-Assad. Um, no, but seriously, I, I don't see... If we were willing to contemplate sanctions relief in exchange for compliance with a set of constraints and obligations, then some of these unsavory characters who are central figures in the Iranian regime would be beneficiaries of sanctions relief. Um, and by the way, they've been beneficiaries of sanctions because their, their positions within the Iranian government have allowed them to profit from the corrupt workarounds um, in the, that sanctions have imposed on the Iranian economy. So, you know, I just, I don't, yes, it's morally um, uncomfortable. It's undesirable, but it was also inherent in the deal. So, like, I'm shocked, shocked we're doing sanctions right. really. So is this like an issue where, like, <laughs> you know, like we sit down and Zarif is like, you know, okay, here's the people we want. And we're like, oh, shit. And then we, then we have to like go back and give it to them. You know, and interestingly, I mean, we're, the Europeans are lifting the sanctions. We're not. Now, I don't know if we didn't have any nuclear related sanctions imposed on the IRGC. I can't imagine that we did not, but we're not go, we're not, we're sort it's almost like we're sort of holding our nose and letting the Europeans do it, but we're not signing on to that. Well, but there is a principled basis for who gets sanctions relief. In other words, Nuclear-related sanctions are being lifted as part of a nuclear agreement. Right. There will still be other sanctions on these and, people. And the other sanctions and the other things that make these guys nasty, which are most of our sanctions on them, as I understand it, um, you know, we're not touching those. So I don't think we're 
just letting the Europeans do it. We own this deal. And, you know, I think it's been yeah. clear in the reaction to your story, Shane, that uh, that U.S. officials have to defend that sanctions relief, yeah. even though it's kind of smelly. Well, this they, is, they also can't come out and say what I think, in terms of their legal authorities and their approach, is probably true. I mean, we were talking earlier about the context for the formal distinctions and stuff. I mean, the context for this is this is a guy who was, I mean, if you take on their face the allegations against him, personally responsible for attacks against Americans. Mm -hmm. A very, very evil guy, in the words of the CIA director, yeah. as you said. Uh, after Mugnia, and from what we know of things like that, the odds that guy walks around probably insecure in the knowledge that the Israelis, with the aid of the Americans, might be blowing up his car today. Yeah. Right. And he that, may not get to the eight years. Right. He may not make it to the ATM <laughs> to wire it to the Only I can hang on for eight more years. <laughs> yeah. He I might buy that boat. <laughs> yeah. He might be on his way there to pop his pin into the ATM to wire it on over to Basra al-Assad or whatever. When boom. And there's a bomb in the ATM. And it does. Ooh. Yeah. And so th there's that. Uh, uh, there's also the fact that all of our counterterrorism sanctions and stuff uh, as to him remain right. in place. So it's, yeah, I, I could see someone making the moral argument, like Tammy said, saying, you know, this is a bad person, we shouldn't reward bad people. But on the other hand... We don't I mean, make well, peace with our friends. That's well, true. Truth. We make peace with our enemies. And we couldn't expect the... And if one thing was, I mean, sort of beaten into our heads about the coverage of this and the way people would... Uh, experts talk about it is that you know you don't run to the Iranians and say you're doing everything we're wrong right now. I'm not giving you anything. Deal? Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> well, what, and <clears throat> one thing I want to just add on this because I think it, it was illuminating. Um, you know, to the question of like, you know, did anybody not think that the people were going to find this? So, like, the the, the the administration did a background briefing for reporters um, with uh, four senior administration officials. Actually, it was five. Uh, uh, who, you know. Five uh, unnamed five senior un administration officials. Five unnamed. You who can, just happened to be in Vienna leading be, the yes, negotiating it, team. Wonder Ooh. who they were. Anyway, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, what I thought was interesting is, you know, so, um, a reporter, uh, uh, asked in this right before I tried to ask the same question, what is Qasem Soleimani doing on this list? And first off, the administration, frankly, was flat-footed. And there were some, uh, the, uh, uh, it, it was like that. Um, they did not have a ready answer for that. Uh, and then later, uh, Secretary Kerry was asked about it in Vienna and said, no, Qasem Soleimani is not on that list. And then later, Foreign Minister Zarif said, no, 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 you're confusing him with somebody else. Bill Soleimani. Well, there is a... <laughs> his golf, his golf Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there is a Qasem with a G, Soleimani with a Y, who is on there, who is a different person. But what was interesting was that the, at least the initial wave of response was both Flat-footed and kind of denial, and then so both then I, on the Iranian and the American. Side. Yeah, and then I went. So, so I went. To, I went to the Treasury Department, and I said, you know, what is this? And they, of course, being the sanction people, were able to explain it. But there was a good two or three hours there where there was some initial reaction from American reporters of, why is the head of the Quds Force getting sanctions relief? The administration saying, no, 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 that's not happening. Yeah, it is happening. And so it struck me that like, why wasn't there sort of more of a Kind of a, it was just very weird that there wasn't right, a ready they, answer for that. They definitely should have and could have, it sounds like, been better prepared to yeah. handle the question. But, you know, why is he getting sanctions relief? Because the U.S. and the Europeans are yeah. giving the Iranians sanctions right. relief. Right. And, you know, and they're giving them nuclear-related sanctions yeah. relief, and there are nuclear-related sanctions against yeah. him. So they get relieved. But that doesn't mean that he's, you know, suddenly white, whiter than snow. It doesn't mean that he's going to be invited to give the commencement address at uh, West Point. You know. No, no, he was yesterday. No. <laughs> well, 
although getting his uh, getting his lessons on counterinsurgency doctrine could be very interesting. Yes, but that he does text be, David Petraeus. Mm, that might be down the road in uh, in that hazy, beautiful vision Past of the initial U.S. Review period. Past the initial review period to determine yeah. compliance. <laughs> All right. Um, <clears throat> Wells, let's move on to uh, your work. Gosh, I don't know. It's so it's so Iranish right now. I feel kind of I feel kind yeah, of we're bad. Take, we're gonna take a break from Iran. Now. Yeah, I guess so. We're gonna we're gonna do sort of we're gonna honor that storied DC tradition of like when something occupies all of the policy universe, someone else runs up and goes, "No, there's this other thing. There's this other thing it's you have really to worry about. It's, I mean, it's a really big deal." Okay, Wells, what's the All right, big my deal? wordplay uh, can stakes very high. My wordplay consists of the interplay between two news stories. Um, mm-hmm. One of them was in wordplay. Uh, oh. Foreign Policy Getting Magazine. Crazy. Uh, uh, under the byline by, of Paul McLeary. I don't know if you know Paul. I do know Paul. Uh, Paul says that, uh, uh, Air Force General Paul Selva, during his, I believe his confirmation hearing to be the next, uh, vice chair of the JCS, told the Senate Armed Service Committee that he would put the threats to this nation in the following order. First, Ru- uh, I assume first, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and all the organizations that have grown around ideology inspired, or, excuse me, articulated by Al-Qaeda. That's way and, at the bottom. And that was the wow. same list given by uh, General D- Joseph Dunsford, who's a nominee to be the chair of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, and Dunford, in fact, had said uh, that during his own hearing earlier, that uh, Russia's behavior in Ukraine is nothing short of alarming, unquote. And he added, quote, Russia presents the greatest threat to our national security, unquote, and, quote, could pose an existential threat to the United States. This is where things get a little weird. Existential he, he, threat. Could, I mean, right after that, no, he said, hashtag. There's a could. I mean, that could yeah. may be doing a lot of work there. So let's just let he that happen. He then flashed at Santa and said, hashtag Mitt Romney was right. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a big asterisk on that could, and I don't know. I mean, we don't want to overread congressional testimony. That having been said, we can't really overread the response to congressional testimony, which was as follows. Uh, the Secretary of State, when asked about this during, you know, sort of kind of post game about the Iran deal, I gather, uh, he disagreed. Uh, and uh, said his spokesman said that Kerry did not share Dunford's assessment, even though Russia's actions pose regional security challenges, yada to you. However, uh, the Secretary of State, according to his spokesman, did consider the rapid growth of groups like the Islamic State, particularly in ungoverned spaces, an existential threat. Now, that was interesting. Existential, existential. There, we, there we go Russia again. Russia does still have a nuclear arsenal. How I should many I should add different this. ways can the U.S. government get this one wrong? It gets better. Oh, uh, wow. I, should add, I should add that the reportage about Kerry comes from a piece in Reuters under the byline of David Brunstrom. Now, I, I remember the existential threat phrase used with respect to ISIS, because we just had this whole AUMF discussion, kind of like do you, don't you, AUMF discussion about ISIS. And uh, I remember that the uh, National Security Advisor had come here uh, to Brookings. And, That's correct. And she sort did. of addressed the state of play rather comprehensively and said that ISIS does not, as I recall. I may be getting the, I, I, I must paraphrase because I cannot recall specifically, so no one hold me to this. And I'm not a reporter, Shane is, so if I made a mistake, someone attributed it to Shane. That ISIS is not the existential threat of the kind that we had seen, I think, in World War II. So there you have it, folks. Russia is at the top of the list, according to the two guys who are going to be running the JCS. Except, no, it's not, according to the Secretary of State, who thinks, no, ISIS is the existential threat. Who happens in that regard to disagree with the National Security Advisor? Yeah, now, the Secretary wow. does spend a lot more time with the Russian Foreign Minister. Yeah, awkward. but, you know, this is, this is just about how do you define a threat and how does the military define a threat and, how, you know, how do we define it in more layman's terms, if you will. The military's job is to assess capabilities, okay, and intentions, but intentions is also the realm of diplomacy and the intelligence community. But the Defense Department's job is to figure out who has the capability to knock the crap out of us. 
And wow, the Russians still have one of the most powerful armies in the world. True. They still have a huge nuclear arsenal. Um, and these are things that we have to have on the board of concerns. So if you're ranking according to capabilities, you know, I don't know if the Russians are at the top or the Chinese are at the top, but the two of them are definitely at the, the top. The two big yeah. states with big militaries. Right. Who could actually, you know, really bomb the crap out of us. Now, do they have any interest or intention in doing that? That's an entirely separate question. Yeah, on I the guess other the, side, lay, the layman's definition of threat, you think of my house exploding, what are the odds? Right. Kind of thing. Or, or does a think missile think land on my yard or whatever? Who could actually attack us successfully, whether it's existential in the physical sense yeah. or not? Who blows up a backpack know, bomb at a big marathon? Right. right. Who blows up a backpack bomb or who, ha who really hates our guts? And says every day that they right. want to bloody our noses. Well, there's no question that ISIS and those Al-Qaeda-linked or inspired groups fall into that category. Or you could think about it this way. Um, not about capability, but about opportunity. If we're talking about lone wolves inspired by Islamist extremism online, boy, we have many, many, many opportunities, you know, of indiv unbalanced individuals, lost individuals, within our own society, and we've seen evidence of that as well. So I, I think this just gets to different ways of thinking about what a threat is, but it also gets to, as I think you revealed very well, the total incoherence in the way the executive branch talks about these threats, and whether it's an AUMF debate or a broader debate with the American people about, you know, yeah. what, why are we using force in the Middle East and what are we trying to achieve? They need to be clearer and they need to be more disciplined. What? Yeah, the, the AUMF is, I mean, AUMF debate, I mean, it can be kind of, I think, a little bit, and I say this as a participant in that debate and almost an enthusiast for that debate, are kind of pointy-headed uh, for a lot of people, like, because if you... Wonderfully wonkish, as someone said to me on Twitter yeah. today. Truth. Uh, that having <laughs> been nice said, the, the AUMF uh, is a, uh, at least symbolic resonance with many people because it is the modern-day decla declaration of war. Yeah. And... Even if the White House was sort of, you know, neat, wanted it, didn't want it, whatever, there are people in the executive branch, lots of them, and in Congress, lots of them, who actually totally agree that we need a statutory basis for proceeding against that terrorist group, even though they can't agree about precisely how that ought to look. No one, I, I think, you know, you would say it would be kind of like almost Mitt, Mitt Romney wouldn't even say we should think about, you know, using force against Russia right. on the ground and right. sort of make, cry, you know, put a, you know, draw like a, Red line. In well, John McCain's ready to put U.S. forces in Ukraine, isn't he? Well, this is the irony. So back to the McLeary piece where McCain, who hears this from the two nominees from the executive branch, who you would think would be just sort of is his singing from the McCain hymnal on uh -huh. this point. He, Amen. He, he apparently <laughs> opened his statement by uh, re reversing this list given by those guys and said, no, 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 hold on. The list of national security challenges is led by, quote, the rampage of the Islamic State's terrorist army, Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons and support for its destabilizing proxies, revisionist Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and China's continued military buildup and aggressive behavior towards its neighbors. So, hmm. you know, I got to say, when the bomb-bomb Iran guy, when the guy who seems to have kind of most enthusiastically yeah. approached the use of military force as a foreign, foreign policy option, is like, hey, hold on, man, you got it backwards. Let's talk about Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe I'm overreading this and maybe this is sort of too much because the, I don't know, the government's a big place and these are very hard things to coordinate. Maybe these are but all the, people it, just it talking does, past however, each other. however, suggest a great question for that first Republican presidential primary debate. 
which is, you know, to each of the ten guys on stage, right. how would you rank threats against the United States right. internationally? Right. And I mean, it, it, the easy answer too would be like they're all bad. Well, the answer from the <laughs> intelligence community, as this points out, and I think this this is kind of like the most coherent answer, yeah. is that there is a categorical threat called cyber, which is always bad, always pressing, and a huge deal and catastrophic. Everybody, it's number one. Yeah, wow. they, they and everybody want, gets that because that. it comes from everybody all the time, everywhere. You're yeah. all wrong. It's yeah. cyber. You're all wrong. It's cyber. The answer is cyber. It's drama. They need we link a McLaughlin group kind of thing. <laughs> cyber. Right. Oh, cyber. The answer is cyber, Eleanor. For <laughs> um, you younger listeners, just go to YouTube and Google. Yeah, Google John that. McLaughlin. Google Google John McLaughlin Saturday Night Live. Did you ever see the <laughs> SNL sketch? Oh, that was totally. funny, man. That was so totally I worked funny. with Eleanor Clift, and she she was reminiscing the other day about um, when that sketch came out. Did she like, think it was funny? They thought it was awesome. They yeah. thought it was just great, and they were like, "Oh my God, look at us! We're being buried on Saturday Night Live." That's how you know you've arrived. Totally. Totally. One of many high, high points in her career. I'm sure she's terrific. Something we can aspire to. Yeah. Truth. Oh, yeah. When they do the rational security satire skit on SNL, that would be awesome. You could totally see, like, backstage when they're all, like, sitting there partying with Lauren Michaels. Like, we've got this idea. We're going to make fun of these, like, th- this podcast. And, and, and you could see the, the idea just dying on the vine right there. Like, oh, dude, that's not funny. <laughs> Someone trying to make it funny, like, you know. Some people we can call. We'll see. We'll see. Um, let's move on to object lessons. Um, uh, I'm very excited. You're very excited. Well, you can go. You want to go last? Go I don't know. Can I? I don't know. You guys. You, you go guys first. go ahead. Go, Please go, go first. Go I have mine. Uh, I have two. You. you have two. I, I'm you two. Are so you are such I, a good guest. It's called the refrigerator object lesson. Thank oh you, Shane. My God, you're, uh, so, you're the best. These were two items from my refrigerator. Um, one of them bears passing relevance to our discussion today. The other one bears no relevance to today. But I. Um, so I'll start with Those the one. The best so I will start with the one that does. And uh, all of you listening at home, if you could see me right now, you and would we'll see have a picture of this on the that website. I have a picture uh, from uh, way, way, way back in the day. Um, it was. It's displayed not only on my fridge, but it's actually a big blow-up picture on the wall of the Jimmy Carter Museum. And I was thinking about it today because Jimmy Carter, his people, and Jimmy Carter himself like to tout his success in actually concluding a big accord involving the Middle East. Uh, for better or worse, whatever its merits, et cetera. But that is true. And so I was, uh, my parents uh, at one time were sort of social justice lefties who really liked Jimmy Carter. So I was thinking, what better to do than bring in a groovy picture of a bunch of people from uh, years past going, peanut brigaders going up from Georgia to campaign for Jimmy. And one of them, you have a lot of like groovy fashion choices here. This guy's checked pants look really, really, I think those are pretty Pure power right That's there. Hot. Oh, there's wow. also there's also a slamming mustache here. But yeah. in my opinion, and I like the the hat. Yeah, that yeah the um why not our best Jimmy Carter? Um, this lady has some good big hair too. I like that. But also, I actually think it was the, a great age. It was a hair. great age. I mean, I wasn't around yet, but I understand it was great. Uh, my dad's sideburns. He's the guy in the, in the left right here on the bus. That's my dad. Wait, let's uh, get a close up of the sideburns. That's my dad. Those are his sideburns. Amazing. And so maybe this is my own way of saying that my father's uh, style choices may have helped the election of Jimmy Carter and thus helped pave the way for the Camp David Accords and in their own way formed a kind of larger precedent for the historic agreement that we discussed today. Yeah. And if you can find any coherence in what I just said, you, That's you, a get, another, picture. you Carter, get another big stack yeah, of Rouhani Carter, posters. Iran, you know, Carter, Carter Iran, Peanut Brigaders, you know, the whole thing. <clears throat> anyway, that's... I mean, nobody's m- saying that your father was responsible for the Islamic Revolution. No, I don't think they blame him personally. Certainly not his sideburns. No. 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 But that looks like a fashion people were wearing. No, man, we, we're, we're a Carter family. Uh, that's my dad on the wall of the museum. Uh, cool. That's cool. Anyway, uh, the other one... Your the, other one is horrifying. No. The, the, the other one, uh, this has nothing to do with anything, 
So my, uh, I got engaged <laughs> in France, and my wife and I went to the Rodin Museum, and they have that lovely garden that's just adjacent to the museum. This is not a Rodin. No, this no. is uh, this is a. I don't know. This, this looks like something out of a nightmare. Author, uh, artist unknown. <laughs> this is on a big pole uh, out in front of the cafeteria there, and it's got a big picture of a bird, apparently superimposed over a fork and a knife. Do not cut the heads off the pigeons. Yes. Well, yeah. So my there. wife and I debated this. It was like, birds don't come here. We'll kill you. <laughs> or you can eat birds here. Isn't this a crazy? Isn't this a crazy cafeteria? See, I looked at it. And so it I thought like, of it as a good rational security Rorschach for you guys. I, uh, my my first thought was it said was don't feed the pigeons because no, it was that's like too logical. Shane. But like I mean, what, well, I mean, it is France. So there's probably some like operative levels of right. humor here that involve physicality and decapitation because they're way into physical humor Je that I just quoi. don't appreciate. Like they love Jerry Lewis for Christ's sake. Um, so <laughs> I don't. I mean, really, he's like a national icon. It's like De Gaulle and Jerry Lewis. It's a thing. What a country! Um, but you know, but it, like it's it's the head of this like squawking gull, which you know with gull? his mouth open, and then this like axe with the knife and the fork, which just usually means don't. I'm like, so don't. No, feed. but it's kind of like a pirate a strip, flag. It's like yeah. the skull and crossbones, but it's a oh. pigeon. Yeah. Caveat museum guest. Pigeons be here. Pigeons be here, or caveat museum guest. We eat pigeons here. Maybe st- still, still, uh, uh, like judging by the symbols, plausible, but also highly improbable. Straight edge pigeons, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> or pigeon heads only in this cafeteria. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it's like a weird rating system. Wow, sort of Michelin star. One pigeon head cafeteria. As yeah, Shay Paul, three Shea Paul got three pigeon heads. heads. We're gonna go there. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it, it, it is, it is um, terrifying and perplexing. It's like it, much of France. To yeah. me. Anyway, that was my that's my my object lesson and. Our sort of foray into right. the absurd. Uh, thus concludes an historic enigma. I'll say historic, <laughs> historic <laughs> enigma. Um, okay, I'll do my object lesson. I'm a little bit late to this, uh, but my object lesson is a film. I often like to talk about films. Uh, it is the new-ish, still in theaters movie *Spy*, starring Melissa McCarthy. Have you guys seen or heard no. about this movie? I heard about it. So it's by the writer and director of *Bridesmaids*, Paul Fig, <clears throat> and it, um, you know, which is a fantastic raunchy comedy. Um, I richly enjoy that movie. Yeah, which, by the way, completely dispels the long-standing stupid myth that women can't do comedy. Seriously, it's it's seriously one of the funniest movies I've seen in years. Anyway, Spy is um, Melissa McCarthy plays uh, this sort of you know um, lonely kind of you know you know average person who works at the CIA who has this really cool job where she is the person in this basement at Langley. I love, by the way, that this has no connection to anything that like apparently actually happens in the world of <laughs> intelligence, um, which the CIA folks I know who've seen the movie also appreciate because they hate it when movies try to be like reality and then get it wrong. This just kind of goes out of the water. Anyway, she plays this woman who um, is uh, the voice in the earpiece of this very suave, debonair U.S. spy played oh, that by Jude is Law. Hilarious. So she's the one sitting Fantastic. back in the dumpy office with the drones being like, look See, out, they're coming around the corner. Turn left. Exactly, exactly. And he's just amazing, and she's kind of like, mm-hmm, nice and wears sweaters and like works in a dumpy office where people bring cake for birthdays, and there's a rat problem. Wait a minute, wasn't that a movie with Whoopi Goldberg? Jumping sort Jack of Flash? like Jumping Jack Flash. I love Jumping. That's yeah. another movie that's There's so some dear to my heart. Yeah. There. That's a great movie. Don't, Dogs make, barking, don't make me recite Jumping yeah, yeah. Jack Flash. <laughs> Dogs barking cannot, <laughs> cannot fly, fly without, without umbrella. umbrella. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there, it's, it's, it's anyway. So through a series of events, um, Melissa McCarthy, who it turns out went through CIA training, turns out to be kind of a kick-ass operative, and gets put into the field uh, where just hilarious hijinks ensue. And Rose Byrne plays this. Uh, 
Wonderful. Oh, kind of a kind of a casting retread from Bridesmaids. <laughs> it's a lot of that, yeah. yeah. It's a lot of, and, and like a lot of these Paul Fig movies with these just brilliant actors, um, a lot of it feels improv but like wonderfully so. And it, it's just, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's if you're into, listeners of this podcast will love it for all of the spy movie references and cliches they send up, but the performances in it are just delightful, and she is... Like, seriously, she's just, like, one of the stars of her comic generation. Sounds she's like a must Awesome. Change. She's great. She totally see it. And she's going to be in the new Ghostbusters movie. For real. Paul Figg's redoing Ghostbusters as with three women instead of three men. Okay, now I have hope for the new Ghostbusters movie. Totally. Yeah, that's Until suddenly... you told me that, I was highly skeptical. Yeah, before yeah. that, I sort of thought they were kind of laying hands on the Ark of the Covenant in terms of well, just, no, just no, destroying, no. A good pla- destroying a classic. Ghostbusters 2 was just And Chris horrific. Hemsworth is going to play Vigo? the that, that movie sucked, yeah. <laughs> oh, Ghostbusters 2, we can't even talk no, about it. No, just whack. don't go there. That's just, no, that didn't happen. Histo- race, erasing from history. Yeah, it was whack. Um, tomorrow, your object. Well, my objects, I brought two as I well. Two. But they, but they are, they are two of a kind. As you can see, I'm holding here a pair of job announcements. Ooh. And, uh, and here's, economy. here is my pitch to you, rational security listeners. My Center for Middle East Policy, the Brookings Institution, is hiring not one, but two research assistants for our team. It's that time of year when our wonderful RAs go off to do other amazing things, like go get their PhDs and leave us. And so we're hiring two uh, slots. Both of them um, we're looking for uh, Arabic speakers, um, but one of them really, truly needs to be fluent in Arabic. We're looking for people who are great researchers, great writers, great team players, and interested in Middle East policy and foreign policy. Look on the Brookings website. Please send us your best, and, uh, and thanks a lot. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our historic episode. Uh, it's been a fun week. Um, thanks for listening. Wow, I don't think I'll ever forget this episode. I, won't I don't think I will either. I never will. Either. I'm going to be thinking about Joe and Jack Flash for the rest of the day. Oh, my God. <laughs> we should totally. We should we have finish. a ceremonial The view. party when the stuffy British diplomat is like eyeballing, uh, <laughs> eyeballing Whoopi Goldberg and his monocle falls out. And the woman goes, you total bastard, Leslie. <laughs> 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 when she comes in with the tape recorder. Yeah! I'm the entertainment. I'm the entertainment. <laughs> you can't hurry, look. <laughs> oh my god, it's a brilliant Dogs movie. barking can't fly without What happened to Whoopi Goldberg, by the way? Dude, just... she got so unfunny like after that movie. Oh, she god. was had some real hits during that, oh, during she that needs, era. She, she needs a sequel. Uh, <laughs> Rational Security is a production of uh, Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Yeah, that's our company. Uh, you can find links to all of our other great podcasts at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And whenever you download the podcast from iTunes or your favorite podcasting service, please leave a rating and comments. Uh, it really helps us out. The podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Qasem Soleimani and the Peanut Brigaders. <laughs> oh, yes. Thank Eight you. years, sanction-free. That's right. <laughs> that would be awesome. You, be you can't hurry, sanctions relief. <laughs> no, you just That's have to That's right, wait. you can't hurry, sanctions relief. Sanctions Got to verify compliance. compliance. Oh, no, it's you two are too. Give and take. Just Going off one another now. We'll, separate we'll be at the Holiday Inn all Maybe week. Extra. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, our music is performed as always by Sophia Yan. Um, I'm Shane Harris on behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman Lewis and our good friend Wells Bennett. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>